We are right in the middle of the Apostle Paul's defense of the resurrection before Herod Agrippa. Unlike his Roman counterpart, Festus, Herod Agrippa could draw upon a thorough knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures and a control of the intricacies of the Jewish faith. Did his intellectual interest in religious matters lead him to the truth? How did he personally resolve the debate over this dead man called Jesus, who Paul claimed was alive? Let's join our study leader, Dave Wurtson, in the courtroom for the answers. We have a hearing, a room, where Paul is being given an opportunity to defend his faith. And we learn that Festus, the Roman governor, is just someone that's in it for political expediency. We've learned that Herod Agrippa is a Jewish expert. He knows all the ins and outs of Jewish controversy, but he's not really the kind of a man who is willing to put his religion into his life. We learn that he was living in incest with his very own sister. And yet he is the man that is, that is hearing Paul's case and trying to come up with an answer for it. Now, last week we raised the issue of who really did fly over the cuckoo's nest. We raised the issue that sometimes it's hard to know who really is crazy and who is sober. Now, as we're studying the Apostle Paul's speech right at the conclusion, right at the climactic moment of this speech, Festus, the Roman governor, is going to stand up and he's going to look at Paul and say, Paul, you've been in seminary too long. You took too many years going through Dallas Seminary. Your great learning has driven you out of your mind. The kids are firmly convinced that too much study will drive them crazy. Right, Mom and Dad? You know, the kid says, you know, Mom and Dad are always saying, do your homework, do your homework, it'll help you get ahead. And the kids are saying, no, it's getting me out of my head. And I'm going to go insane. Well, that's what Festus thought had happened to Paul. Now, the question that you need to decide as you study Acts 26 is as I listen to Paul's argument, as I think about the reasons for why he believed in the resurrection, do I believe that it's sober truth or is it madness? Now, that's what I want you to be crystal clear about. Because biblical Christianity doesn't leave you the option of treating Christianity like a nice, tranquilizing pillbox. God will not let you take biblical Christianity, put it in a little pillbox with tranquilizers inside, and stick it in your pocket. And whenever you're under distress, whenever there's a death, whenever there's a terrible sickness, whenever there's a financial crisis, you reach in your pocket, you run off to church, go to church quite frequently under time of distress, take your tranquilizer, but as soon as things get relatively back to normal again, then you put your pillbox back. God will not let you do that with biblical Christianity. Cultural Christianity, yes. Apostolic, Pauline Christianity, no. You need to decide in your heart. I'm going to either believe this and I'm going to let it become the sustenance of my life. I'm going to let it become the reason why I live or say that Paul was out of his tree. It's a radical choice. But it's the choice that Acts really presents to us. Now what Paul is doing in Acts 26 is he's focusing 
Paul liked to focus on what was really important. And every one of your faith, if I were to ask you this morning, how many of you believe in Christianity? How many of you believe in Jesus? And then I were to ask you, what's the foundation of it all? If I could knock one point out of your faith and the whole thing would come crashing down, what would be that point? If I were to ask you, if I could take away one reality out of your faith and I could prove to you that it wasn't true, what would that reality be? And the Apostle Paul would answer, the essence of my whole faith, the foundation of everything I believe, is one essential fact. God the Father in heaven did raise his Son out of death to life again in history. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the foundation of it all. I was talking to a carpenter this week, and he was telling me about building these beautiful houses. You know, he said, Dave, you know, I can build a beautiful house, say a quarter of a million, $250,000, put beautiful cubicles on it, all that gingerbread on the house, put all these beautiful wood railings all around it. But you know, if the foundation stinks, if the foundation is wrong, it's not going to make it. In fact, when I worked construction, I never did get to build anything. I spent all my summers when I was working construction in holes in the ground. And I used to ask my superintendent, why did we work so long in this stupid hole? And he would say, because that's the most important part. When you're building a house, the wives get very impatient. It's very exciting when you start putting up trim and everything. But there's nothing at all exciting about digging holes and digging beams and dr drilling pier holes and all kinds of things. But the foundation is the essence of it all. And that's why Acts chapter 26 is so important. Because there's very few places where you can get up close and personal and have the Apostle Paul himself say, this is why I believe what I believe. Now, let's pick it up in Acts chapter 26, verse 4. And Paul, in the, at the end of verse 3, said, I beg you to listen to me. Remember that he's speaking to Agrippa, the Jewish expert, Festus, the Roman governor, a complete secularist, a materialist. And then he has all the Kiliarchs, the rulers of, of a thousand Roman troops, and then all the notable citizens of Caesarea. And he begins like this. The Jews all know the way that I lived ever since I was a child. From the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem, they have known me for a long time, and they can testify if they are willing that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial today. This is the promise our twelve tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. What is that hope? It is the hope of the resurrection that's brought out in verse 8. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many times I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. 
In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. Paul in those verses has laid out the essence of what he's going to defend. He says, the essence of what I believe is the old pharisaical doctrine that God raises the dead. In the first century, there were Pharisees, there were Sadducees, and there were Essenes, and there were Zealots. The Sadducees were the conservative political power group. They did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in angels. They did not believe in spirits. They believed in now. They believed in religion. In fact, most of the Sadducees were where the priests came from. They were strong religionists, but just like in the modern world that we have many people, even religionists, that don't believe in the spirit world, they don't believe in life after death, they just believe in now, that's the way the Sadducees believed. Not the Pharisees. The Pharisees were very orthodox theologically. They believed in the Old Testament very much the way you believe in the Old and New Testaments. And they believed that God could raise the dead. In fact, later, if you want to look at it in Daniel chapter 12, God promises Daniel that he will go the way of all flesh, he will die. But then God gives him a great comfort. He says, Daniel, I will raise you to life at the end of time. And he speaks very clearly in Daniel 12 about the resurrection of Christ. The Pharisees believe strongly in Daniel chapter 12. Jesus himself argued right from the early chapters of Genesis because in Genesis, God continually appears to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and he says this. He says, I was the God of Abraham. He said to Isaac, I was the God of Abraham. And then he said to Jacob, Isaac's son, Jacob, I was the God of Isaac. Is that what it says? Somebody correct me. Is that what God came to Isaac and said, I want you to remember, Isaac, I was the God of Abraham. What's wrong with that? Tell me real loud. I am. Say it real loud. I am. What would be wrong with saying I was the God of Abraham? That would mean that Abraham was no longer with us at all. He was gone. He had ceased to exist. He died just like a dog. Jesus argued that the phrase, I am the God of Abraham, implied not only that God was the great I am, the eternally existing one, but it also said that his people, when they died, did not cease to exist. But they were still people. They were still people that could think, feel, and decide. And Jesus argued from the earliest pages of the Pentateuch that resurrection is what the Old Testament taught. Now, the Pharisees believed all that. What they couldn't believe is when it actually happened. You know, I found that to be true in my own life. It's easy to talk about what you believe. Haven't you found that? It's easy to talk a good line. But men alive, when somebody says, listen, there's an empty tomb out there. You come and look. I mean, he's gone. And he appeared to us. He ate with us. And we hugged him. We felt him. Jesus wasn't some spooky, ethereal ghost when he rose again from the dead. They had a meal together. They had several meals together. That's when everything changes. You know, it's easy to talk of theoretically, oh, I believe in the resurrection. But when God says it actually happened, that's when you have to make some decisions. 
Now, Paul is laying out the very first plank of why you should believe in the resurrection. And I can illustrate his basic point to you this way. You know what the Apostle Paul did? He came right into buildings like ours. Only they didn't have buildings. They met in homes. And he would look at the whole bunch of you and say, you'd curse him. Don't sing, oh, how I love Jesus. If you sing, oh, how I love Jesus, one more time, you're being taken off and we're going to stone you. I tell you, those are exciting gathering together as believers. You know, you have exciting church services when at any moment that a persecutor might walk in and challenge your faith. It's an amazing thing. Christianity does really well under those circumstances. Christianity can handle that a whole lot better than nice, comfortable acceptance. What Paul was testifying to this Jewish audience in Acts 26 is, I understand why my enemies hate me so much. I understand why they want to kill me. I can really empathize with it. I can identify with it. And his audience says, why, Paul? He says, because I used to be the worst one. Man, I was more vehement than any of my opposers. So what you have to ask yourself is what happened to the Apostle Paul? Because he is not butchering Christians anymore. He is not Paul the persecutor anymore. He is now Paul the proclaimer. Now you can psychologize it. And what you can basically say is that he just had a radical upheaval in his life, maybe some kind of a crisis, and that's what generated what it did. You can believe that. And then you've got to live the rest of your life saying, I think that's, a, that's an adequate reason. I think that's an adequate cause for the kind of effect that I see in Paul's life. And then you have to say that a guy that was a little bit Looney Tunes wrote some of the most powerful writing that has built people up in 1 Corinthians 13 that taught people how to love. And one of the great foundational apostles of the Christian church was a little bit Looney Tunes. Now, you can believe that. I know a lot of people that do. Personally, I have trouble with that. But I do have to face the choice. What in the world changed the Apostle Paul? And I'm sharing with you from very deep in my heart. I was raised believing in Jesus. But what my parents believed, you see, I had to make some decisions for myself. And all I'm sharing with you from very deep in my heart, if you say, why are you doing what you're doing today? Why do you feel we should be a part of this worship of Jesus? Why do you believe that we should be interested in reaching other people for Jesus? Because I believe the resurrection of Christ is the best explanation for what happened to the Apostle Paul. I believe the resurrection of Christ is the cause that explains why a man who was not out of his head, who was not insane, who had one of the most brilliant, marvelous theological minds in the first centuries, why that that great Jewish scholar suddenly became a proclaimer of Jesus after being a persecutor of Jesus. My answer to that is, he actually saw Jesus alive. In the modern world, the story of Chuck Colson is very similar, although you don't have a personal appearance of Christ. But you have the personal work of the Holy Spirit, and the world is still scoffing. But Chuck Colson couldn't have cared less about Jesus when he was the hatchet man for Nixon. Chuck Colson couldn't care less about being together with a group like us 
on a Sunday morning to sing, Oh, How I Love Jesus, when he was the hatchet man for the president, he wouldn't be caught dead in a place like this. He would have thought you were loony tunes. He writes a bestseller, Loving God, that speaks about loving God through Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. And he devotes the rest of his life to prison ministry, trying to reach those that are imprisoned by their sin and their guilt and are physically imprisoned. You see, the story still goes on. People are still being saved. What we need to decide is whether or not we're really committed to it, whether or not we really believe it, whether or not we're, gonna, we're going to really believe that the Apostle Paul saw the resurrected Christ, and that's what produced the change in his life. Now, that leads us to our second point. If anybody asks you, why do you believe the resurrection of Christ? Number one, you answer, you open up to Acts 26, and you say, the first reason I believe in the resurrection of Christ is I believe it is a very adequate explanation for what changed Paul the persecutor into Paul the proclaimer. And you can challenge. A lot of our kids are going back to the university in just a week or so, and they're in a very hostile environment at times. And this is the kind of thing you do. Challenge those who oppose you to come up with a better explanation for what happened to Paul and challenge them to live with it. C.S. Lewis said something very interesting. All you as believers, you have doubts at times, don't you? How many of you have ever doubted your faith? And how many of you have ever really gotten upset about those doubts? Well, what I want you to realize, C.S. Lewis was, was on the other side of the fence for a large part of his life. And he brought us into mind something very important. Have you ever thought about the doubts on the other side? Have you ever thought about being an unbeliever and wondering whether or not it's true? Of rejecting Christ and pondering maybe Paul did see the resurrected Christ? See, join the club. You're part of humanity. But I praise God. I'd much rather have the Holy Spirit in my life giving me that deep-seated conviction and listening to sober truth that we're talking about today. And I find in my times of doubt that that gives me great sustenance. You see, what the Lord is teaching me is my faith is much bigger than just my own ideas. What I'm sharing with you today, the reality that in history Paul was a persecutor and then he became a proclaimer of Christ and he actually did see Christ alive. Brothers and sisters, as I grow older, that's a source of tremendous strength. You know what I find is I commit myself to that, and the Holy Spirit daily is helping us to do that more. I'm well inside. I'm together inside. I'm in tune. It's like being in a harmony. It's like being in tune, okay? And that's what the resurrection of Christ does for us. And that's what I wanted to do for all of you. Now, the second choice you need to make, a radical Pharisee becomes a committed witness for Christ. The second reason that Paul said, I believe in the resurrection of Christ, is Jesus personally appeared to Paul on the Damascus Road. He had a personal appearance by the resurrected Christ. Look at it in verse 12. Acts 26, verse 12. On one of these journeys, you want to picture Paul traveling north to Damascus, with the authority and commission of the chief priests, about noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. 
We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. And all you farmers in the audience, what you want to picture here is a great big ox who's in a situation where as he struggles and as he tries to get out of harness, the goats keep pricking him, keep stabbing him. It's kind of like the ancient world's equivalent of one of those rods with an electric shock on it. And what the Lord Jesus is saying is saying, Paul, as you persecute the church, you are kicking against reality. You are kicking against the truth. And it's hard to do that. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. And those words hit the Apostle Paul like a sledgehammer. Paul said, who are you, Lord? Who are you, Yahweh? Who are you, the Old Testament God who's now appearing to me? And the Old Testament Yahweh answered, I am Jesus. And Paul never was the same again. Never. He says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from the hand of the Gentiles, and I am sending you to them to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith. I want you to think carefully about what the Apostle Paul is saying. This scene is very similar to an Old Testament commissioning service. Do you know what I mean by that? If you open up the early pages of Jeremiah, God will appear to Jeremiah and God will give him a message to proclaim. He has a direct revelation from God. He hears a voice from God. Ezekiel chapter 2, same kind of a situation. In fact, very similar words are used. The idea of arise, stand on your feet. I've got a job for you to do. The exact same kinds of terminology are used for Ezekiel. You say, Dave, why do you call our attention to that? Because Paul means for us to understand what we believe to be united with what Isaiah believed, what Ezekiel believed, what Jeremiah believed, and then the next prophet we have the Apostle Paul. Paul is just as much a prophet as Moses and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah. I can't believe how incredibly naive people are about who they let teach them. It's unbelievable. In the most important area of life, daddies, what you train your children in spiritually. That's the most important thing. What you tell them about life after death. What you tell them about reality. That's the most important thing you do. And we are so naive. We'll let just about anybody teach us. I mean, someone says they heard a voice in the night and we believe them. Don't do that. I challenge you. Examine the Apostle Paul. Think about what it says about him. And what I want you to do is understand his claim. He is claiming, I'm united with the whole Judaic traditions that go all the way back to the beginning of time in Adam and Eve and come right through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right into David, right into the latter prophets, and then Jesus, and I am now the representative of Jesus. Paul claimed to be a prophet, just like Jesus. Very, very important. 
his commissioning service. What Paul is telling this Jewish audience is, I was commissioned by the risen Christ, just like an Old Testament prophet. Now I want you to look carefully at what his commission was. It says, I am sending you, in verse 17, I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive the forgiveness of sins. I want all of you to listen to me. It's very, very important. Kids that have grown up in our church, I know because I was raised in a Christian environment, a lot of you kids think if only I could get out there, if only I could do the things that I want to do, if only I could drink if I want to until I'm drunk as a skunk, if only I could get involved in as much immorality as I wanted to do. I'm just going to talk to you straight. If only I didn't have to go to church every Sunday and come and read the Word of God. I just don't have any interest in those things. I really want to be free. As you move up from being a child to being an adult, every one of you as young people, there's going to be a very strong force in your life that says, I've got to be me. I want to be free. And Satan's going to tell you, get out from underneath mom and dad's faith. Get out from what they believe. Get out from what Dave's been teaching you for years. Just get out there and you can really be free. When I share with you something, there's no freedom in the world. There is fun. There is scintillating excitement. There is a blast. There is a lot of fun in the world. But it's slavery in the end. And if the adults, and some of you as young people say, well, men alive, some of the older people in this room, they talk to me about how they used to live and, and all the things they used to do, and now they've come to Jesus. I want to learn the same way. Please don't learn like that. For one thing, you might not make it back out of Satan's kingdom. There's no guarantee that you'll get out from the hands of that vicious giant. Who we worship this morning to the most powerful being in all the universe. But Satan is also very powerful. Not at all in the same class as Jesus. But he's much more powerful than any of us. You know what Paul was saying? He was saying, I have a message that can deliver you from the power of Satan. You know what the power of Satan is? The power of Satan is to cause us to sin. And our human nature responds to it. And we sin and we sin and we sin and we can't get away from it. How many of you have ever had something? I want you to think about your own life. How many of you have ever had something that you do in your life that you know is bad for you? You know it's not good for you to do it. And you really want to stop doing it. But you can't. That's what the power of darkness is. That's what the metaphor means. It means that we're a slave. You see, Satan's always telling you, you come out into my world and you'll be free. And what he does is he starts tying you up more and more and more. You get more and more guilty. And then your guilt turns to indifference. And then your body's being destroyed because the wages of sin is death. The power of the kingdom of God, of the kingdom of Satan is, slowly but surely, Satan will wind his technicals around you until he just snuffs the life right out of you. And none of us can get away from that in our own strength. Your self-discipline is peanuts compared to Satan's power. 
Your positive thinking is nothing compared to his power. There's only one message, there's only one reality that can deliver from Satan's power. And that's the resurrected Christ is alive. If you believe in him, he'll come to live inside of your life and he'll create moral light in your life. He'll give you a new creation, a new personality. And through the power of the Spirit, he will cause you to begin to walk not towards death and enslavement, but towards freedom. Now that's what the Apostle Paul was commissioned to preach. And he did it not as the super honcho, not as the great, powerful man. He did it as a servant. And that's what the Lord wants us to capture this morning. Paul wants us to join him in being servants who will serve people enough to be willing to get out of themselves and share the simple realities of what we believed. Paul's final point was that all that he taught was fully in line with the prophecies of the Old Testament. At the end of this speech, Festus jumped up and said he was crazy. He said, Paul, you are out of your mind. And Paul just soberly, I think he probably folded his arm, he says, Festus, I'm not out of my mind. What I've told you is the sober truth. And then Paul did something very interesting. He turned to Agrippa and he says, Agrippa, you know the things I've been talking about, the events of Christ's life. You know them well. You see, Agrippa, Agrippa had lived firsthand in the Holy Land. Agrippa knew as a boy the events of Christ's life. In fact, his daddy's the one that murdered James the Apostle. He was the persecutor. His daddy was the persecutor of the early church. And don't you think for a minute that Herod Agrippa II did not know what Paul was talking about. And then Paul reached very deep. He said, Agrippa, do you believe the Old Testament prophets? And Paul had him. Because as a good Jew, he needed to believe the Old Testament prophets. And possibly, he did. And what Paul had shown him is that the Old Testament prophets taught that the Messiah would die and rise again. Jesus died and rose again. And I want you to put it all together. If a man believes the Old Testament prophets, then eventually he's going to come and worship Christ and believe in Jesus of Nazareth. Now what did Agrippa do? Right at that crucial moment of time, Agrippa had Festus there. He had all the Roman Kiliarchs there and all the leading men of the, of the city there. What would you do? You know what he did? He did what a lot of us do at times. He did not want to face the ridicule of Festus. You see, if he said, I believe in the prophets, Paul, I should believe in Christ, Festus would have laughed at him because Festus just said that Paul was out of his mind. You know why Agrippa didn't believe in Jesus? Because he didn't want somebody to think that he was crazy. And that's the reason why some of us won't believe. And that's the reason why some of your friends won't believe at school, why some of the people at work won't believe. They're concerned about the festuses that are around them. So you know what Agrippa did? He made a joke. He said, Paul, 
He said, Paul, do you think in just a short discourse like this that you can persuade me to play the Christian? Do you think in giving me just a few words like this that you can convince me to play the role of a Christian, of a believer in Jesus? And what it was was a kind of like a casual shrug of his shoulders. He didn't say, almost thou persuadest me to be a believer. The Greek means in, in just a short time or with just a few words in just this cursory presentation, do you think that you can make me to play the believer like you? You know, Paul closed with something I want all of you to think about. Paul looked at Agrippa and says, Agrippa, I'm willing to talk to you for a short time or for a long time. He said, oh, Agrippa, my prayer for you is that you will become like me, that you will find Jesus like I found Jesus. My prayer is that you will meet the resurrected Christ and believe in him as I have. You know what else Paul did? Paul looked all around the room. He says, I wish that for all of you. You know, that's the way we need to present the gospel. You know what I want you to all realize as believers? As we close in prayer, I want you to pray that the Lord will give us a heart like the Apostle Paul had. Do you really want other people to come to know Jesus? Do I really want other people to come to know Jesus? You see, Paul wasn't a ranting, raving, fanatical kind of a preacher. He really wasn't. He was a man that just soberly told the truth with unbelievable acumen, unbelievable accuracy, and probably greatest of all, with unbelievable integrity. And he looked at all these unbelievers and he held his chains up in the air. He says, I wish you were just like me. I wish you had Jesus in your life like I have him in my life. I wish you would believe in the resurrected Christ except for these chains. How loving he was. I don't want you to be a prisoner. But oh, I'd love you to become a prisoner of Jesus because that's the only place to find freedom. You know, that's what our family needs to believe. That's what I need to believe. That's what we need to devote ourselves. If anybody ever asks you, why do you believe in the resurrection? What are you going to tell them? Number one, I believe in the resurrection because it's the greatest cause to explain the effect that changed Paul from a Pharisaic persecutor to a Christian proclaimer. Number two, Paul testified that the risen Christ appeared to him in the Damascus Road. As I study his writings, he doesn't come across to me as a fanatic that would lie and deceive me. And so I believe that just like God appeared to the Old Testament prophets, the resurrected Christ appeared to the great Apostle Paul. The third plank of your belief in the resurrection is Jesus fulfills all that was predicted of the Messiah in the Old Testament. Don't ever forget that. Three planks. The change in Paul's life, the appearance of the resurrected Christ in the Damascus Road, and the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Those are the planks. Those are the foundations. That's the concrete that Paul built his faith. And that's the foundation we need to build our faith on. We have not followed cunningly devised fables. We have found the truth. Share it with your friends. 
this week reach out to people and say, I wish you could know Jesus like I do. Let's have a time of quiet prayer. And you just decide for yourself what you're going to believe. Is it insane? Is it a joke? Agrippa just made it a joke. Or is it the sober truth?